Well, good morning again. It's nice to see everybody again. I hope over this past week that you've been able to put mercy into practice. We talked about it last week. We've sung about it again today. And it is truly amazing and remarkable and refreshing how merciful God is. And no matter who you are or where you've been or what you've done, you're not beyond God's mercy. And I hope that not only have you experienced his mercy this week, but you've been a conduit for his mercy to your family, to your friends, and to your community. I want to start this week with a question. Um, The question might seem like it comes out of the blue, so I'll give you a moment to digest it and to think about it. And hopefully through the course of the next few minutes, we can arrive at an answer. The question is this, who owns you? Who owns you? Well, you can do a Google search and you can find all sorts of uses of that phrase. And that's not what I mean. I'll give you an example. You could say that if you're an athlete and you're constantly competing against a different athlete who's taller, faster, stronger, better, that every time you compete, you lose and they own you. I'm not talking about that. And and it turns out there's actually this, this very interesting and kind of ominous and scary thing that's happening. You could imagine being part of a social media network. Uh, Maybe you upload pictures to Snapchat or Instagram or Facebook. Turns out some of these companies are working, this is cool, but scary, working on making 3D models of you from your images so that they can superimpose you into ads they send to your friends showing Like, Josh, maybe they know I follow you, and I like Jeeps, so they show you in a Jeep and target the ad to me. And the question is, well, who owns owns you? Who owns those images? Right? That's actually a coming question that our society will have to deal with. And there's also a book called Who Owns You? And it's about who owns your DNA and your RNA. Suppose you leave your fingerprint somewhere in a restaurant, and a scientist scoops it up and makes a clone of you. Who, Who owns you? I don't mean any of those things. What, what I mean is like, who, who owns the you who is right here, right now? Who owns you? It, it could be that you say, nobody. I own me. I own my car. I own my house. I own clothes. I own my appliances. Nobody owns me but me. Or maybe you, you feel a weighty sense of obligation like, well, my obligations own me. My family owns me. There are things I would like to do, but I can't. Maybe your job and your career own you. Maybe your past. Maybe your regret, shame, misopportunities own you because they haunt you. But who owns you? If, if any of these answers resonate with you, then We're in for some good news today. Uh, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 22. We're going to intersect a time where Jesus has been doing his ministry for several years. And the religious leaders of the day, they're wanting to put a stop to it. So Matthew chapter 22, we'll have it up on the screen for you. If you wouldn't mind, would you please stand in honor of God's word? We'll read. We'll read the passage and then I'll pray for us. All right. 
Matthew 22, starting in verse 15. The Pharisees went and they plotted how to entangle him, how to entangle Jesus in his words. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying this, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard it, they marveled, and they left him and went away. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you help us today to think through these verses and understand what it is that you taught and why they marveled. Lord, I pray that you would make us marvel as well. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so we'll start. You know, last week when I was up here, I said what we always do in the youth department, we'll read a passage, then we just go back through it and make sure we understood what it was that we just read. Right? The Pharisees, they, they um, went out and, and they were trying to figure out how to tang- entangle Jesus in his words. Right? They're trying to create a situation where Jesus has to give a technical answer to something, and they're hoping to trip him up, to show that he's not as smart as the crowd believes him to be. Have you ever been tripped up by a question? Somebody asks you to defend something, and you start an explanation, and then you're like, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. Right? They're, they're trying to catch Jesus on the spot. In verse 16, you see that there's this unlikely alliance. It tells us there's two groups, really, that are involved in this particular plot. There are the Pharisees and their disciples, and there's another group called the Herodians. The Pharisees were a group that were pro-Israel. To their credit, they were pro-Scripture. They were in favor of holiness and having a right and true connection with God. Sadly, they simply happened, they were anti-Jesus. Where the Pharisees are pro-Israel, and the group they go along with, the Herodians, are pro-Rome. And these two groups should be natural foes. But you see here, uh, the true, uh, true nature of the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And together, they both hated Jesus enough that they team up to try to trap him. So they're unlikely uh, allies in this case. And we only know in Scripture of one other time these two groups got together, and that's in Mark chapter 3. What had happened there is Jesus, on the Sabbath day, went to church, to the synagogue, and there was a man there who needed mercy. He had a withered hand, and Jesus had the audacity to heal a man with a need in church on Sunday, on on the Sabbath. Wow. Well, they were so enraged by this, it tells us at the end of that passage, that the Pharisees and the Herodians got together to plot, quote, how to destroy Jesus. Right, so these natural foes 
came together with the intent here again to get rid of Jesus. And notice how they start their engagement with Jesus. They're using flattery. They say, oh, teacher, we know that you teach truthfully. Well, just because it's flattery doesn't make it wrong, because Jesus does teach truthfully. And they say, you're not swayed by other people's appearances. Well, that's true. He's not. Right? But you can almost imagine them in your mind's eye rubbing their hands and going, hee, 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 hee. You're not afraid of, you're, of anyone. You don't care about outward appearances, but we're about to ask you a question that's sure to offend someone. You better care. You need these people. And the question they're about to ask, you see in, in the next verse, is about paying taxes. And, and they form it in the phrase of a yes, no answer. There, there's, you either say yes, it's okay to pay taxes, or you say no, it's not okay to pay taxes. Yes, well that puts you in trouble with the Jewish people you're trying to reach because they hate Rome and they hate taxes. But if you say no, well that puts you in trouble with the Romans. And it's not like the Romans are like our, our IRS, who, where you get a tax fine. No, refusing to pay taxes and inciting people not to pay taxes was a punishable offense, prison or death. And if you fast forward, when Jesus is on trial, one of the charges that's brought against him is that he was inciting people not to pay the tribute, a false charge. So... We see the trap being set up. They're asking them this yes or no question. They're, they're thinking that they can get him entangled in his words. And from this same account, but in, in Luke, not in Matthew, we know they're hoping he will say no to taxes so they can deliver him to the authorities. That's what it says in Luke. So the specific tax here, just for your information, this is free. It, it refers to a poll tax or a tribute. And the best consensus on what it was is a wealth tax. So if you owned a house, you took a portion of the value of the house and you had to pay it to Rome. You owned a boat because you're a fisherman, you owned nets, took a portion of the value and had to pay it. And all of this tax had to be paid in Roman currency, not in Jewish currency. So it's not only overbearing, as you might know as a property owner who has to pay taxes on your house and, and such, Right? For them, it was overbearing because they also had to transfer their currency into the Roman currency at the time. So verse 18, Jesus understands the situation. He's not trapped by it. He's not confused by it. And he's not overwhelmed by their flattery because what does he tell them? Well, it's pretty direct. Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Because Jesus saw their heart in the matter. And it says here that they approached him with malice. Right? And the question they ask... It's a legal question, right? Notice what it says. Is it lawful to pay taxes? I mean, it'd be easy for that word to just go, go past us and not recognize what they're actually asking Jesus. But when Jewish leaders ask a law question, what they're asking Jesus to do is to respond with an argument from the first five books of the Old Testament. Right? So what they've basically said is, Jesus, <clears throat> issue of taxes to Caesar. Prove to us from Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy whether it's lawful. So that makes the problem narrower, but also harder. Because remember, unlike us who can sit at a computer and type and watch 
people do sermons on a text and listen to blogs and, and research the meanings of words and have access to everything, they, they had their memory. So the, the law experts, the Pharisees, Herodians, they had the books memorized. They were experts in the law. They could make the case. Well, so let's get to Jesus' answer. <clears throat> Verses 19 to 20, the first part of it. What does he say? Show me the coin. So they brought him one of the coins, a denarius. And Jesus asked them whose likeness and inscription is on it. I've got a picture for you of the coin, the most likely used. This is the denarius. Uh, the picture on your left is uh, the head of Tiberius Caesar. You can see uh, the inscription around, around the right side. It says, Ty Caesar, and that refers to Tiberius Caesar. This was his coin. It was made in Lyon, France at the time. And then the troubling part of this coin, you notice he's wearing like this uh, laurel wreath, and near his forehead are the four letters D-I-V-I, D-V. It's making the claim that he's God. Right, so the Jewish people objected to using this coin because on it, Tiberius Caesar is making the claim that he himself is God. And in the backside, the image presumably is of his mother posing as the goddess of peace. And it says pox on the, the backside of the coin. So the likeness in Roman times, the likeness of him with the claim of deity, it actually made a claim of ownership on all who transacted in the coin, which, which isn't too unlike what happens even in modern day. I've take, had to take a lot of uh, classes with the company I work for, and it turns out any transaction anywhere in the world that's done in U.S. dollars, the U.S. government claims jurisdiction over. Right? So how does the U.S. prosecute money laundering in Chile or a crime in Morocco? Well, if they use U.S. dollars, they claim jurisdiction. Right, with the currency comes power. And it was more so under Tiberius Caesar, when he had his image claiming to be God, he was delegating a micro amount of his power with each coin, but he maintained control over all of his subjects. That, that was his thinking, right? With, with money came power, money and power, they went hand in hand. And I think we'd have to admit it's not that much different today. Money and power go hand in hand. And it's this power and control that come with money. It's, it's really, I think, true that we attribute that to money. We expect it of money. And we even want it from our money. I mean, we want ease and comfort. We want to take the burden off ourselves, and that costs money. We want peace of mind. We want to accumulate to retire. When there's a run on toilet paper, we want to stockpile, right? But there's this temptation. We, we attribute you know, having money to being a good thing, and it, it can be. It is a tool. I'm not anti-money, right? But there's a danger that comes with it. The danger in accumulating, the danger with attributing control and power to it is that we can forget to depend on God. Right? Life is fragile, and it doesn't matter how many millions you have, it can be gone in an instant. 
right? And money doesn't buy the things that matter most. Yeah, money can buy a house. Money can buy a lot of houses, but it can't buy a home. Money can buy a crowd, but it can't buy friends. And money can buy experiences, but it can't buy meaning. Right, and all of this, this transfer of power, the deceptive power and control of money, all of this was wrapped up in the coin of Caesar, and worse, it claimed him to be God. And so the Jews, they objected to using this money with his image and his description, his inscription, well, because of the Ten Commandments. They objected to these false teachings of money, and they objected to him being claimed as God. Exodus chapter 20, verses 3 and 4, is the first two of the Ten Commandments. And it says, there you shall have no other God before me. And there Tiberius Caesar thumbing his nose in the face of God, claiming himself to be God. And the next one says, and you shall have no graven images. And there you have a graven image. Right, so this, this coin was horrifying to the Jews on two counts. And it's for those reasons that the coin wasn't even allowed to be in the temple. It shouldn't have been. Which is why you find in the previous chapter, Jesus go in, goes into the temple and he clears out the money changers. The people who were trading Roman currency for Jewish currency because of the Jewish taxes you had to pay in Jewish currency. And the people there that should have been performing a service were taking advantage of their fellow countrymen. Right. All right, so how then does Jesus actually answer the question? We'll, we'll come back to that. Verses 20 and 21. Let's read that again. It says, Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they say, Caesar's. And then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So we'll get to the answer in in just a second. But notice part of the answer is in Jesus purposely using two words, image and inscription. They have the coin in front of them, and it might be easy uh, to think he's only referring to an object But his statement, give God what is God's, is also linked to these two words, image and inscription. You see, the Jewish leaders, they would have understood that because they're legal experts. They've just asked Jesus, use the first five books of the Bible. Jesus, on the spur of the moment, gets presented a question, has the wherewithal to ask a question or to ask for an object from that object picks two features out of it that make them remember the Torah. Image and inscription. What what would they have remembered? Well, they would have remembered this, that God's image is within us and his inscription is upon us. Genesis chapter one, verse 26, it says, God said, let us make man in our image after our own likeness. That's repeated throughout Genesis. In 9-6, Genesis 9-6, it says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. The whole concept of God's image and the power that conveys and the creativity we experience because of it They understood when he used the word image. It was part 
of their way of life, understanding the image of God. And there's the coin, and Jesus is essentially saying, sure, Caesar has his image on this coin, but God has his image on you. And the inscription, they would have known, and we can learn now, that the inscription referred to God's law. And God's law, if you study it, is not just rules of do's and don'ts. It's, it's a showcase of God's promises and our hope. And I wish we'd have time to go into it, but we don't. But God's law is not just do's and don'ts. It's his promises encapsulated. It's our hope. It's his inscription. In Exodus chapter 31, Ten Commandments. Moses receives them from God, and it says, When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. In Deuteronomy 27, verses 1 through 8, as they're going to enter the land, they're told to set up two gigantic stones, cover them with plaster, and inscribe on them the words of the Torah. And that's so that everybody in the land would have access. It would never be hidden, always available, but again, inscribed. It was the rule of the land, the way of life, the inscription. And in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9, there's a famous passage that has a title. It's called the Shema. It's a section of scripture that the faithful Jewish people repeat even to this day. It says, Hear, O Israel, our Lord is one. The Lord our God is one. And it goes on to say, take these commandments, take this inscription and write them on your hands, bind them to your forehead, write them on your doorposts, inscribe, inscribe, inscribe. Because God is with you. Right, so Jesus, it's amazing. He sees a coin, he picks out two features, the image and the inscription, and they know. It's irrefutable to them. God's image is in us and his inscription is upon us. So they get more than they wanted. They try to trap him. They ask a question about taxes and he's essentially telling them, yeah, go ahead, pay taxes. Because paying the poll tax doesn't validate Caesar as God. It acknowledges God's authority. God made every person, including Caesar. And God's inscription is on every person. Caesar's not exempt. But they also got a rebuke. Right? In part, they objected to paying the tax because of the image and the inscription on the coin, but they also objected to paying taxes because of their situation. And what they would have remembered, I'm sure of it, is that God owns everything. This too, is found in the Torah. You see it in Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 32. It's repeated for us by Paul in Acts 17. If you're on the Gospel Project, we studied it a couple weeks ago. But I'll read to you Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23. If you're taking notes, I'll say it again. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23. Here's what God says to his people. He says, the land is not to be permanently sold because it is mine. And you are only foreigners and temporary residents on my land. 
That's what God told them. And as they think through their history and what God had told them, his image is upon them, their inscription is in them. And God is the owner of everything. They got a rebuke from Jesus in this simple phrase. We also are made in God's image. And his word is inscribed on us. And he's still the owner of everything and everyone. And these truths of God's image and his, his inscription and his ownership, they don't stop with just the Torah. They carry through to the rest of the Old Testament and into the New Testament because they remain true. But there's more. They become intensely, intensely personal and intimate. And we see in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, talking about Jesus, it says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Right? Jesus is the image of God. And we see in 1 Corinthians 15 that by faith, we ourselves can bear the image of Jesus. It says, just as we have borne the image of man made in the dust, we will also bear the image of the heavenly man. You see, you could be sitting there and, and recognize, like we all should, I might once have had the image of God upon me, but it's pretty hard to see because I've defaced it, corrupted it, betrayed it, rebelled against it. And Romans 8.29 says we can be conformed into the image of Jesus. Right? God's mercy is more. We have corrupted his image on us. We have defied his image on us. We have tried to stamp perhaps our own image on top of his. Right? Calvin, who sits on the throne of your heart? Right? Whose image is upon your heart? It's like in uh, Tiberius' day, a common practice for the Caesar of the day was to collect all the coins melt them and recast them with their own image. And God's saying, I've got something better for you. I can take the image on your heart and recast it and remake it. You don't have to stay where you are. And then the inscription. So notice in, in the Old Testament, when, when we went through the Torah, it was about writing God's law on objects. In Jeremiah, God gives us a fantastic promise. The heading you'll see in your Bible says new covenant, a new promise. And here's what it says. Instead of this covenant, I will make with the house of Israel after those days, uh, the Lord declares a new covenant. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. God promises a time when his words aren't just external, but they're resident within us, written on our hearts. That's repeated again in two places in Hebrews. In Romans chapter 2, verse 15, it tells us the people that don't believe in God and people we might think are unreached by knowledge of Jesus. It says this about them. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. Their consciences confirm this. Right, God, with the new covenant through Christ, will remake your image to what it should have been. 
and to write his law on your heart. And then we hear this great promise that there is a specific inscription that God promises. It says in 2 Timothy 2.15, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his. And for ownership, right, you see this concept in many places. I'll just read one verse to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20. It says, don't you know, your body is a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. You are bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. Right? God owns everything. His imprint now with the new covenant through Christ, his image is remade within us. His inscription is within us. And he still owns everyone everywhere. Uh, we're all owned by somebody. Someone's image and someone's inscription is on your heart. So I ask you, who owns you? Well, God extends to you the offer to let it be him. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for just the marvelous response that you gave to those who were trying to trap you with words and technical arguments. And I thank you for what we can learn by thinking about what it means, God's image and God's inscription. I pray, God, that you'd want, you'd help us to want, desire to plead for your image to be remade on our hearts. Lord, your inscription to be rewritten on our hearts. Help us, God, to give ourselves to you. In Christ's name, amen.